welcome to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. I am David Arley Gates. And I'm Cal Beisner. And together we are going to begin talking over a wonderful document called The Biblical Perspective of Environmental Stewardship, Subduing and Ruling the Earth to the Glory of God and the Benefit of Our Neighbors. This is a document that was created about eight or nine years ago at the request of Dr. Jay Grimstead. Jay Grimstead is a theologian. He was one of the founders of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which set forth what's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and later on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. He was also the founder of the Coalition on Revival, a group of several hundred evangelical theologians, philosophers, and others working together to flesh out the biblical worldview and how it applies to all the different spheres of life. That was back in the 1980s, and Jay and I have been friends ever since the 1970s. And about seven or eight years ago, he asked me to work together with a few other people in putting together this document on basic affirmations and denials about environmental stewardship from a biblical perspective. It was co-published by the Coalition on Revival's International Church Council and the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. David, uh, in this first discussion of it, you and I set out to try to go over items one through six, affirmations and denials one through six. So, the first affirmation and denial is we affirm that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, verse 1. We deny that the earth or anything else is the result of impersonal blind chance over time. I like that these are going to be in an affirm and deny framework. We are saying what we agree with, what we affirm to be true, and what we disagree with, what we deny to be true. Thus, we shall provide an explicit distinction between what we believe and what we reject. That in particular is what I like about all 30 of these. The affirmation and denial style is not terribly widely used throughout history, but it was particularly pressed by the late Francis Schaeffer, a great evangelical Presbyterian apologist, popular philosopher, and pastor, founder of the Labrie movement. And Schaeffer did this because of the relativism that's so common to the 20th century and on into the 21st century. And where there are relativists, it's always easy to say, yeah, I believe this. And I also believe it's opposite. Schaefer just said, no, we really can't do this. If you believe two plus two is four, you cannot simultaneously believe that it is five or anything other than four. So that's where this affirmation and denial style really came from. And I, like you, I think it's very, very helpful. Very much so. This first affirmation denial starts us off with the basics of what defines our biblical worldview and hence our biblical perspective of environmental stewardship. The foundational question is, what is your guiding principle? Clearly, our guiding principle must be Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, where the Pharisee approaches Christ and asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
And Christ responds that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So I believe that is on what we focus through these 30 affirmation denials. Now, with this first one, we are establishing God as worthy of love with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We are putting God first, literally in the first affirmation denial, to affirm that the earth is truly God's and that we deny that it is a statistical random chance or the role of some celestial dice that created life on earth. Yeah, which means, of course, that <laughs> there's an authority. If God made everything, he certainly has every right, every authority to instruct us about how it is to be used, what is right and what is wrong. I mean, he has the authority to tell us that the first and greatest commandment is to love God and that the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he has the authority to tell us what to do with this earth on which he has placed us. So, we're not independent. We are not autosocratic or anything like that. We are dependent on him and responsible to him. Our next pair here was that we affirm that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the sole, absolute, inerrant, epistemological basis for mankind, for all knowledge of all things, seen and unseen, and that all claims of truth and moral duty that contradict it are false and harmful. We deny that the physical universe and human observations of it justify truth claims contrary to those of the Bible, and that liberty, justice, and human dignity can be sustained while rejecting biblical truth and law. In college, I was part of a congregation of what was the Grace Brethren Church, whose credo is the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And this is what the second affirmation denial claims, is that the Bible, as defined by the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments, is inerrant, absolute, and sufficient to show us all things, both seen and unseen. It is the guiding light, therefore, for our definition of truth. And we deny, therefore, that any truth or anything that can be true can go contrary to what the Bible states because it is God's inerrant revelation to us. In fact, in one of the Psalms, we actually read that God is truth. In First John, we read also that God is truth. We also read that God is love. And so, if we really want to know what real love is, what real truth is, then we need to know God, and God has revealed himself in the Bible. The Evangelical Theological Society was founded with just a single statement of faith, a single proposition that was its foundation. And that was the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. And this inerrancy of Scripture is a tremendous reassurance to us that when we have properly understood the Bible, which of course is a task, it's not always terribly easy, but when we've properly understood it, what we wind up with is truth, not falsehood. The temptation for us 
is always to, I think, put what philosophers, theologians through history have called natural revelation ahead of special revelation, natural revelation being the creation itself, the world, the universe, life on earth, and all of these things. And of course, these do testify to us. Scripture itself tells us in Psalm 19, for instance, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the firmament shows his handiwork, etc. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that God's invisible attributes are known by his creatures, that he's revealed himself through his creation. And yet, because of our fall into sin, and we'll be talking about that later in working our way through this document, we have a tendency to misunderstand that. And so, God gives us special revelation to help us and to give us a worldview, a grid through which to understand that natural revelation. The Reformation theologian John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion referred to the Bible as spectacles through which we see the created order better than we otherwise would. C.S. Lewis said, I embrace the Christian faith the, the way I embrace the sun. It's not that I am looking so much at the sun as that the sun enables me to see everything else. And it, it's our Christian faith, our, our faith in the scriptures, that enables us to understand the world around us better. Number three is we affirm that the only true God, who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and immutable, revealed himself in creation, creation being made out of nothing by God and including both physical and spiritual things. He's revealed himself also through the Bible, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and that though God reveals his wisdom and power in the creation, he is always has been, and always will be absolutely distinct from and transcendent over creation, which he rules at all times and places. By contrast, we deny atheism, the belief in no God, pantheism, a belief that everything is God, panentheism, that God is to the universe as the human soul is to the human body, animism, that there are many gods and they indwell in animate physical objects as human souls indwell and animate human bodies, and that any other view denying the creator-creature distinction, because those who hold them exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I've been reading a book by Peter Jones. It's, it's called One or Two, where he sets forth that those other religions are what he calls oneism, that the creator and the creation are one, while Christianity is, as he says, a twoism religion, that the creator is in fact distinct from the creature, and that while Christ could become human, man and other creatures can never become God. Uh, the, the third affirmation denial set here sets forth very nicely that we are separate from God, and that there is a, a clear distinction between the divine God and the created. All other beliefs that affirm that we humans are God or that humans can become God or that humans and God are one uh, are clearly wrong. I have a friend who is a pantheist. She's embraced Hindu thought. And she says, Cal, I know that 
you think that God is different from the universe, that, and that when I think that uh, you're God and I'm God and this various other person is God, and in fact, all of us are God, I know you disagree with me about that, but I think it's fine for you to think what you think and I think what I think. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, gee whiz, God must be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, if you're God and you think God is everything, and I'm God, and I'm quite sure God is not everything, then God is contradicting himself. And I just don't think that that's the sort of God that I'm prepared to worship. And I don't think it's the sort of God that anybody should be prepared to worship. But this point, of course, really is very, very relevant to the whole environmental issue because so much of the environmental movement is either pantheistic, God is everything, or panentheistic, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body, or atheistic, on the other hand. Either one of those denies the creator-creature distinction. In atheism, you have no creator. In pantheism and panentheism, the creator and the creature turn out to be basically the same thing. But when we do that, we have dragged God down out of his transcendence onto our own level. And what that winds up doing is it really makes us equal with him. And then we no longer are obligated to trust him, to obey him, to honor him, and so on. Number four, we affirm that human dignity, freedom, and justice can be sustained only insofar as a society affirms the creator-creature distinction and embraces the truth of Scripture, and that those who deny it become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened, which comes from Romans 1.21. We further deny that societies built on atheism, pantheism, panentheism, animism, or spiritism, or any other rejection of this creator-creature distinction can flourish intellectually, morally, aesthetically, and materially. You know, some people will think that sounds really pretty haughty. I mean, after all, there are societies that flourish and don't embrace this. And yet, when we look at history, I, I think, for instance, of a book by my friend, uh, Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi. Vishal is an Indian Christian philosopher. He wrote a book called The Book That Made Your World. And from the outside, he's speaking to people in Western civilization. He's saying to us, you're like fish in water. You never think about the water because you're used to it. But if you get pulled out of it, you know, suddenly you think, oh, I can't breathe. <laughs> well, here are the things about your Western civilization that derive only from the biblical worldview. And you don't think about them because you're so accustomed to them. But let me tell you, from somebody coming in from a different culture entirely, a totally different civilization, these have never come up anywhere else. And where this culture, this biblical worldview, this biblical set of moral perspectives and so on has thrived, civilization has thrived. Liberty and order, justice and freedom dignity and mutual respect have thrived. Where they're absent, they have not. And so we consider, as we say here, that human dignity, freedom, and justice 
really depend on our recognition of this creator-creature distinction and the truths of Scripture, because that's where we get these, these elements of Western civilization. Number five, we affirm that the creation includes persons, conscious spirits capable of reason, moral judgment, and affection, and therefore morally accountable for their actions, and that some of these persons are bodiless, they're immaterial, that is, angels and demons, and some are embodied, that is, combinations of spirit and body, for example, humans. By contrast, we deny that the material cosmos, including nature and its parts, the created world of time and space, matter and energy, planets and stars, and energy and material elements, that this material cosmos is personal, either in its whole or in its parts. Hence, we deny that forests and trees, mountains and rocks, oceans and lakes and streams, and animals are persons. I remember an article that came out, I guess it was about a decade ago, and it was called The Silent Scream of the Asparagus. And it was actually based on a real event that was happening in the Swiss courts where fauna and flowers were being given legal rights. In Switzerland, you know, one could simply not pick flowers or destroy them because flowers were being given legal standing, not only in the court system, but actually this was embodied within the Swiss constitution. This is part of the, the movement toward both animal rights and even plant rights. And the, the Swiss actually amended their constitution to make it illegal to harvest a crop in a manner that didn't respect the dignity of the plants involved. And it's only if you personalize all of these things that you can really sustain this notion. You know, the concept of rights and the concept of duty are integrally related. All rights entail duties. If you have a right to liberty, I have a duty not to enslave you, not to imprison you, and so on in, in, for any unjust reason. If you have a right to live, I have a duty not to murder you. But the same thing is true in the opposite direction. If I have a right to life, then I also have duties not to take away the lives of other people who also have those rights. Problem with animals and plants is they can't have duties. They don't have the rational faculty, the logos, as the Bible puts it, the, the logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And the logos is the light that lightens everyone who comes into the world. This rational capacity is exclusive to persons. Animals and plants don't have it. Therefore, they can't have duty, and if they can't have duty, they also cannot have rights, because duties and rights inevitably balance each other. But silent scream of the asparagus, I remember that one too, and you immediately pointed out where you head if you start to personalize all of nature. You then wind up with things being assigned rights that cannot have duties, and then humanity, because 
people can have duties, we wind up being subservient to everything else. Nature comes on top and people on the bottom. Yes. And I, I think it, it's it's rather odd because with the current discussion on abortion, those who espouse pro-choice somehow believe that, it, that a human life is not worthy of protection while it is still within the womb. But somehow the asparagus, the chimpanzees, rocks, well, they all have immutable rights, which uh, under no circumstances can be violated. It, it's, it, it's all upside down. Yeah, you smash a bald eagle's egg and you are in for huge fine and I think possibly even imprisonment. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's law in America. There is no excuse for that. You can't say, well, okay, but the, the, the chicken here was short of viability. This is how we really turn things upside down when we leave the Christian worldview behind. Before we go on to number six, our last number for this program, I just want to point out to folks that this whole document on uh, the biblical perspective of environmental stewardship is available at the Cornwall Alliance's website, cornwallalliance.org, under the tab called Landmark Documents. So folks can pick that out there and, and uh, print it, read it at their leisure, read it online, and share it with other people. I think this is something that can be helpful to a whole lot of folks. Well, our sixth point and the last one that we'll discuss for today is one that also is a bit controversial nowadays. We affirm that God made man, male and female, in his own image. And that's from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. We deny that any other terrestrial life form bears the image of God or is of equal value or priority with human beings. And there we point to Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. David, a whole lot of the environmental movement has big troubles, particularly with the notion that human beings are alone made in the image of God and of greater value than anything else. But in fact, even the male-female issue has begun to arise in all of this discussion too, hasn't it? Almost definitely. It used to be that, that you were either male or female, depending upon whether you had a Y chromosome or not. And, and now some believe that you can somehow declare yourself to be whatever gender you want to be. And I guess by some accounts, you have about 96 different genders from which to choose. But, but to me, that makes no sense at all. And going back to Genesis 1, verse 27, where it is written that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It says male and female, period. No hybrids or variants, nothing like that. But, but I also want to focus on the denial phrase here. It says, we deny that any other terrestrial life form bears the image of God or is of equal value or priority with human beings. And I think we are distinctly different from the rest of creation. We mentioned in number five that some persons are bodiless, angels and demons, for example, and we are created differently than they are, and we have a different relationship with God than they do. I think this is why the denial of number six refers to terrestrial life forms only. Right. 
you know, and if Jesus could say, as he did in Matthew 10, 29, and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You are of more value than many sparrows. And this is a, a clear affirmation of the value of human life over all other life on the earth. And that's why the bottom line measurement of environmental quality is human health and longevity. There are other things that we want to be able to affirm too. We want to have healthy ecosystems. We want to have biodiversity. We want to have a wide variety of life and, and plenty of it, of other forms of life. But people come first. And unfortunately, much of the environmental movement thinks opposite about that. And we'll be seeing further things about that as we continue walking our way through this fundamental document on biblical perspective of environmental stewardship. The first six perspectives, therefore, set God as the creator and set us as being the created beings, set distinct and separate from God. And, and as we move on through these remaining perspectives, we will discuss how creation should be interacting with God and how creation should be interacting with the rest of creation itself. So thanks much for joining us, and we look forward to speaking with you further on the next episode of Created to Reign.